Salutations. I am Kenneth Barrios, leadership coach and owner of Key Bravo Leadership Development with the mission of unleashing your talents and maximizing your impact without compromising your time. Welcome to our 16th Law Success series, where I read out loud about 20 to 30 minutes of this great tone for your audio pleasure. This book is the foundation of which all other personal and professional development is based, written by Napoleon Hill in 1928. I am now using this as public domain book as my foundation to success, and I want to bring you along for the journey. So please enjoy, and your feedback is always welcome. With gratitude, thank you. The fifth basic fear is that of the fear of ill health. This fear has its origin to considerable extent also in the same sources from which the fears of poverty and old age are derived. The fear of ill health must needs be closely associated with both poverty and old age because it also leads towards the borderline, quote, terrible worlds, quote, of which man knows not, but of which he has heard some discomforting stories. The author strongly suspects that those engaged in the business of selling good health methods have considerable to do with keeping the fear of ill health alive in the human mind. For longer than the record, of the human race can be relied upon. The world has known of various and sundry forms of therapy and health purveyors. If a man gives his living from keeping people in good health, it seems but natural that he would use every means at his command for persuading people that they need his services. Thus, in time, it might be that people would inherit a fear of ill health. The sixth and last of the six basic fears is that of the fear of death. To many extent, this is the worst of all the six basic fears, and the reason why it is so regarded becomes obvious to even the casual student of psychology. The terrible pangs of fear associated with death may be charged directly to religious fanaticism, the source which is most responsible for it than are all other sources combined. So-called, quote, heathen, quote, are not as much afraid of death as are the, quote, civilized, especially that portion of civilized population which has come under the influence of theology. For hundreds of millions of years, man has been asked the still unanswered, and it may be the unanswerable, questions, whence, quoted, and whither, quoted, quote, where did I come from, and where am I going after death, quote. The more cunning and crafty, as well as the honest but credulous, of their race have not been slow to offer the answer to these questions. In fact, the answering of these questions has become one of the so-called, quote, learned, quote, professions. Despite the fact that but, learning, le but little learning is required to enter this profession, witness now the major sources of origin of the fear of death. Quote, Come into my tent, embrace my faith, accept my dogmas, and pay my salary. And I will give you a ticket that will admit you straight away into heaven when you die, quote, says the leader of one form of secretarism. Quote, remain out of my tent, quote, says the same leader, quote, and you will go direct to hell, where you will burn through, throughout eternity, quote. While, in fad, the self-appointed leader may not be able to provide a self -con safe conduct into heaven, nor, by lack of provision, allow the unfortunate seeker after truth to descend into hell, 
the possibility of the latter seems so terrible that it lays hold of the mind and creates that fear of fears, the fear of death. In truth, no man knows, and no man ever known, what heaven or hell is like, or even if such places exist, and this very lack of definite knowledge opens the door of the human mind to the charlatan to enter and control the mind with his stock of legerand and various brands of trickery, deceit, and fraud. The truth is, this nothing less and nothing more, that no man knows nor has any man ever known where we come from at birth or where we go at death. Any person claiming otherwise is either deceiving himself or is a conscious impostor who makes it a business to live without rendering service of value through play upon the crudality of humanity. It is said in their behalf, however, the majority of those engaged in, quote, selling tickets into heaven, quote, actually believe not only that they know where heaven exists, but that their creeds and formulas will give safe passage to all who embrace them. This belief may be summed up in one word, credulity. Religious leaders generally make the broad sweeping claim that the present civilization owes its existence to the work done by the churches. This author, as far as he is personally concerned, is willing to grant their claims to be correct, if, at the same time, he be permitted to add that even if this claim be true, the theologians haven't a great deal of which to brag. But it is not, cannot be, true that civilization has grown out of the efforts of the organization, organized churches and creeds if by the terms, quote, civilization, is meant that uncovering of the natural laws and the many inventions of which the world is to be their present heir. If the theologians wish to claim that part of the civilization which has to do with man's conduct toward his fellow man, they are perfectly welcome to. As far as this author is concerned, but, on the other hand, if they presume to gobble up the credit for all the scientific discovery of mankind, the author begs leave to offer vigorous protest. It is hardly sufficient to state that the social heredity is the method through which man gathers all knowledge that reaches him through the five senses. It is more to the point to state how social heredity works in as much different applications as will give the student a comprehensive understanding of the law. Let us begin with some of the lower forms of animal life and examine the manner in which they are affected by the law of social heredity. Shortly after this author began to examine the major sources from which man <clears throat> gathered the knowledge which makes them what they are, some 30-odd years ago, he discovered the nest of ruffed grouse. The nest was so located that the mother bird could be seen from a considerable distance when she was on the nest, and with the aid of a pair of field glasses, the bird was closely watched until the young birds were hatched out. It happened that the regular daily observation was made but a few hours after the young birds came out of the shell. Desiring to know what would happen, the author approached the nest. The mother bird remained nearby until the intruder was within 10 or 12 feet of her. Then she disarranged her feathers, stretched out one wing over her leg, and went hobbling away, making a pretense of being crippled. Being somewhat familiar with the tricks of mother birds, the author did not follow her, but instead went to the nest to take a look at the little ones. 
Without the slightest signs of fear, they turned their eyes toward him, moving their heads first one way and then another. He reached down and picked one of them up. With no signs of fear, it stood in the palm of his hand. He laid the bird back in the nest and went away to safe distance to give the mother bird a chance to return. The wait was short. Very soon, she began cautiously to edge her way back towards the nest until she was within a few feet of it. When she spread her wings and ran as fast as she could, uttering, meanwhile, a series of sounds similar to those of a hen when she has found some morsel of food and wishes to call her brood to partake of it. She gathered the birds, little birds around and continued to quiver in a high, excited manner, shaking her wings and ruffling her feathers. One could almost hear her words as she gave a little birds their first lesson in social self-defense through the law of social heredity. You silly little creatures, do you not know what men are your enemies? Shame on you for allowing that man to pick you up with his hands. It's a wonder he didn't carry you off and eat you alive. The next time you see a man approaching, make yourself scarce. Lie down on the ground, run under leaves, go anywhere to get out of sight, and remain out of sight until the enemy is well on his way, quoted. The little bird stood around and listened to the lecture with intense interest. After the mother bird had quieted down, the author again started to approach the nest. Within 20 feet or so of the guarded household, the mother bird again started to lead him in the other direction by crumpling up her wing and hobbling along as if she was crippled. He looked at the nest, but the glance was in vain. The little birds were nowhere to be found. They had learned rapidly to avoid their natural enemy, thanks to their natural instinct. Again, the author retreated, awaited until the mother bird had reassembled her household, then came out to visit them, but with similar result. When he approached the spot where he last saw the mother bird, not the slightest signs of the little fellows were to be found. Break, break. I would like to have a quick word from our sponsor. Thank you for your time. Let's get back to the reading. When a small boy, the author captured a young crow and made it a pet of it. The bird became quite well satisfied with its domestic surroundings and learned to perform many tricks required considerable intelligence. After the bird was big enough to fly, it was permitted to go wherever it pleased. Sometimes it would be gone for many hours, but it always returned home before dark. One day, some wild crows became involved in a fight with an owl in a field near the house where the pet crow lived. As soon as the pet heard the call, call, call of its wild relatives, it flew up on top of the house and with signs of great agitation walked from one end of the house to the other. Finally, it took wing and flew in the direction of the, quote, battle. The author followed to see what would happen. In a few minutes, he came up with the pet. It was sitting on the lower branches of the tree. Two wild crows were sitting on the limb just above, chattering and walking back and forth, acting very much in the same fashion that an angry parents behave toward their offspring when chastising them. As the author approached, the two wild crows flew away, one of them circling around the tree a few times meanwhile letting out a terrible flow of the most abusive language, which, no doubt, was directed at the foolish relative who hadn't enough sense to fly while the flying was good. The pet was called, but it paid no attention. That evening it returned home, but would not come near the house. It sat on a high limb in an apple tree and talked in crow language for about ten minutes, saying, no doubt, that it had decided to go back into the wildlife of its fellows, then flew away and did not return until two days later. When it came back, it did some more talking in crow language, keeping a safe distance. Meanwhile, it then went away and never returned. 
Social heredity had robbed the author of a fine pet. The only consolation he got from the loss of this crow was the thought that it had shown fine sportsmanship by coming back and giving notice of his intention to depart. Many farmhands had left the farm without going to the trouble of this formality. It is well-known fact that a fox will prey upon all manner of fowl and small animals with the exception of the skunk. No reason need to be stated as to why Mr. Skunk enjoys immunity. A fox may tackle a skunk once, but never to for, the, for this reason, a skunk hide one nail to a chicken roost will keep all but the very young and inexperienced foxes at a safe distance. The odor of a skunk once experienced is never to be forgotten. No other smell even remotely resembles it. It is nowhere recorded that in, any mother fox ever taught her young how to detect and keep away from the familiar smell of a skunk. But all who are informed on, quote, fox lore, quote, know that foxes and skunks never seek lodgment in the same cave. But one lesson is sufficient to teach the fox all that cares to know about skunks. Through the law of social heredity, operating via the sense of smell, one lesson serves for an entire lifetime. A bullfrog can be caught on a fish hook by attaching a small piece of red cloth or any other small red object to the hook and dangling it in front of the frog's nose. That is, Mr. Frog may be caught in this manner, provided he is hooked the first time he snaps at the bait, but if it, he is poorly hooked and makes a getaway, or if he feels at the point of the hook when he bites at the bait but is not caught, he will never make the same mistake again. The author spent many hours in stealthy attempt to hook a particularly desirable specimen which had snapped and missed before learning but one lesson in social heredity is enough to teach even a humble croaker that bits of red flannel on things to be let alone. The author once owned a very fine male Airedale dog, which caused no end of annoyance by his habit of coming home with a young chicken in his mouth. Each time, the chicken was taken away from the dog, and he was soundly switched, but to no avail, he continued his liking for fowl. For the purpose of saving the dog, if possible, and as an experiment with social heredity, this dog was taken to the farm of a neighbor who had that, who had a hen and some newly hatched chickens. The hen was placed in the barn and the dog was turned in with her. As soon as everyone was out of sight, the dog slowly edged up toward, toward the hen, sniffed the air in her direction at some time or two to make sure he was the kind of meat for which he was looking, then made a dive toward her. Meanwhile, Miss Hen had been doing some surveying, quoted, on her own account, for she met Mr. Dog more than halfway. Moreover, she met him with such a surprise of wings and claws as he had never before experienced. The first round was clearly the hens, but a nice fat bird reckoned the dog was not to slip up between his paws so easily. Therefore, he backed away a short distance, then charged again. This time, Miss Hen lit up his back, drove her claws into his skin, and made effective use of her sharp bill. Mr. Dog retreated to his corner, looking for all the world as if he were listening for some ring to bell and call the fight off until he got his bearings. But Miss Hen craved no time for deliberation. She had her adversary on the run and showed that she knew the value of the offensive by keeping him on the run. One could almost understand her words as she flogged the poor Airedale from one corner to another, keeping up a series of rapid-fire sounds, which all, for all the world resembled the 
remonstrations of an angry mother who had been called upon to defend her offspring from the attack of older boys. The Airedale was a poor soldier. After running around the barn from corner to corner for about two minutes, he spread himself on the ground as flat as he could and did his best to protect his eyes with his paws. Miss Hen seemed to be making a special attempt to peck out his eyes. The owner of the hen then stepped in and retrieved her, or more accurately stated, he retrieved the dog, which in no way appeared to meet the dog's disapproval. The next day, a chicken was placed in the cellar where the dog slept. As soon as he saw the bird, he tucked his tail between his legs and ran for a corner. He never again attempted to catch a chicken. One lesson in social heredity, via the sense of touch, was sufficient to teach him that while chicken chasing may offer some enjoyment, it is also fraught with much hazard. All of these illustrations, with the exception of the first, describe the process of gathering knowledge through the direct experience. Observe the marked difference between knowledge gathered by direct experience and that which is gathered through the training of a young by the old, as in the case of the ruffled grouse and her young. The most impressive lessons are those learned by the young from the old, through highly colored or emotionalized methods of teaching. When the mother grouse spread her wing, stood her feathers on end, shook herself like a man suffering with the palsy, and chattered to her young in a high, excited manner, she planted the fear of man in their hearts in a manner which they were never to forget. The term social heredity, also is used in connection with this lesson, has particularly referenced to all the methods through which a child is taught any idea, dogma, creed, religion, or system of ethical conduct by its parents, or those who may have the authority over it, before reaching the age at which it may reason and reflect upon such teaching in in its own way, estimating the age of reasoning power, let us say, 7 to 12 years old. Thank you for your time today. I hope you learned as much as I did in this reading. If you ever desire to connect with me, you can email me at kb at keybravo.com. That is kb at keybravo.com. Have a wonderful day, and may you be blessed with all the success you endeavor.